All right, thanks, Tony, for leading us in worship and helping concentrate our thoughts. So I want to switch gears now. We're going to be looking at this lesson today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 16. So if you have a Bible, open up, follow along, and we're going to kind of really be in the first part of Luke chapter 16. Way a reminder, we've been studying the Gospel of Luke the last few months. Uh, we're looking at the middle section, the on the way, on the journey to Jerusalem. Jesus is on His way to his death. He's on his way to the cross. And most of this section that we're in, these teachings, these stories, these parables are unique to Luke's gospel. So we find ourselves in Luke chapter 16 uh, this morning. How many of you remember the rock band Van Halen? Anybody? Okay. Doug does back there. If you haven't met Doug, uh, you know, I was guessing anybody 50s, 60s, 70s may remember Van Halen. Or if your parents listen to this band, well, the reason I'm using them as an example is they used to have this odd request when they would put on a concert and travel around the United States, and they would make contracts with different promoters to go perform at different arenas. And tucked away in the middle of a contract, I think it was Article 126 or something like that, said that they required a bowl of M&Ms backstage. But not just a bowl of M&Ms, they wanted all the brown M&Ms removed. Now, that sounds like a really weird request. Maybe you've heard this before because it is a true story. Sounds like a really odd request. It almost sounds like a celebrity just being a punk because they're celebrities and they're just doing that to mess with the promoter. But there was a purpose behind it. So at the time, especially, they were putting on huge concerts. They would show up with nine 18-wheeler trucks filled with equipment for their concert and so they wanted to make sure when they arrived, first of all, the doors were wide enough to get their equipment through. They wanted to make sure that the stage was able to hold the weight of all their equipment. So they had all these specific things that they needed done, these safety checks. So the lead singer for Van Halen said that when they showed up, if they'd go backstage and if there was brown M&Ms in that bowl, that was an indicator to them that the promoter had not paid close enough attention to the contract. And if he just kind of skimmed over it and missed the brown M&M test, the brown M&M clause, that means they needed to do a full safety check. And he said, almost every time you're going to run into problems. You know, there have been times where he, one example he used was a concert in Colorado that the, the promoter did not do the safety checks and they tested the equipment beforehand, and the stage was going to collapse, and many people would be injured. So it was like a life and death situation, but the M&M test is what revealed to them whether or not they needed to do that safety check. Does that make sense? So if, if the promoter was faithful in the small things, that means he was probably detailed and faithful in the bigger things. But if he just kind of skimmed over it and and missed some of the small things, he probably missed some of the more important things also. And that sounds a lot like what Jesus says in Luke chapter 16 and verse 10, where Jesus gives us this little principle. He says, Whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. Whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. I don't know if Van Halen uh, received their inspiration for this M&M test from Jesus, but it, it sounds very similar. I mean, obviously, this, there's so much truth in this because Jesus said it, and I want to talk more about verse 10 here in a little bit later on in the lesson. 
But before we dive into this principle and this verse, we're going to have to go backwards a little bit. And we're going to look at the full context. And so I want to look at the parable that comes before the principle. And this parable is known as the parable of the shrewd manager. How many of you are familiar with this parable? How many of you know exactly what this parable means? Okay, not many. I saw a few people raise their hands in the first service and I just ignored them because I didn't want to embarrass them because nobody fully understands what this parable means. This is one of the most debated parables that Jesus ever taught. It's confusing. Um, Not everybody agrees with what it means. And because of that, you don't hear very many classes or sermons on this parable, but we're not going to dodge it today. We're going to spend a few minutes going through it. So I'm going to read it, and then we're just going to walk back through some of the details of this parable, and you can follow along Luke 16, verse 1 through 9. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master has taken the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 50. Then he asked another, how much do you owe? He replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Now, if you're reading this for the first time today ever, or the first time in a long time, if you're like me, your first thought should be, hmm, like, what does that mean exactly? Especially verse 9 at the end of this parable, because it sounds like Jesus is saying, use the money that you have by whatever means necessary to make friends. But from everything we know about Jesus, that doesn't really line up with everything else that he taught. So what could this parable possibly mean? Let's walk back through a few things here. In verse 1, You have a rich man, a certain rich man. That's important because three times in the Gospel of Luke, three unique parables to Luke's Gospel only, he starts with a certain rich man. Parable of the rich fool in Luke 12, and then two parables in Luke 16 about a rich man. Well, this rich man has a manager that works for him, And apparently this manager has just completely squandered and wasted his boss's property. So he calls him in and he he fires him privately. Give an accounting of your managing. But apparently the mistake that the rich man makes is he doesn't take the books away from him right away. Uh, On Wednesday nights we've had this intergenerational roundtable Bible discussion class, which some of you have joined us for. And it's been great. In the last couple of weeks, I basically just, with the text that we would use at our tables were things that I was preaching on, so I would use my table as a sounding board. So we looked at this parable a few weeks ago, and somebody at our table said, this is why when you fire somebody, you take the keys away on the spot. So 
So this manager or this rich man, he doesn't do that. He fires him, but apparently the manager still has access to the books. I don't know if you've seen it kind of in the world that we live in, but on social media sometimes, like Twitter or Facebook or whatever it may be, um, somebody, if somebody's terminated, especially if it's a public company, they may make a, a public service announcement saying that we've parted ways with so-and-so and we wish him best in the future. Well, this rich man does not do that. He fires his manager, but nobody else knows about it. So in verse 3 and 4, the, uh, the manager realizes that he's in quite the situation here. He's about to become jobless and possibly homeless. He said, I'm, I'm not strong enough to dig for manual labor, and, and I can identify with that. As I, the older I get and the worse my back hurts, I can't imagine having a manual labor job digging all day. So I get that. He said, I'm too ashamed to beg. So at least he has an honest assessment of himself. He realizes his predicament, and then he has to act quickly. So in verse 5 through 7, his one final act as a manager, even though he's been fired, but before it's public, his one final act is to take some of the, the debts that people owe to his master and reduce them drastically, whether it's olive oil or wheat or money or whatever it may be. And his motive behind reducing their debt is... Hey, they're going to owe him one. He did us a big favor by reducing our debt, so now we should let him stay in our house. So his motive is he doesn't want to be homeless. So if you stopped right there in this parable, you may think, well, that's kind of shady, but it is clever. Got to give him some credit. And you would expect that once word got out, once the rich man, the boss, found out about what his manager did, you would expect him to be furious. You would expect him to demand justice. You would expect him to demand to get his money back. Instead, the twist comes in verse 8, especially the first part of verse 8. His master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. So instead of being furious with him and punishing him or demanding to make things right, it's like he's saying, well, i got to give you an attaboy. That was smart. Like, good job, you got me there, you fooled me there. It seems like it's, it's kind of a weird response. I don't think any of us would respond that way. So where is Jesus going with this parable? Well, the waters get a little muddy as Jesus kind of adds some commentary onto this. In the second part of verse 8, he says, For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. We don't know exactly what Jesus means by that. Luke does not give us any more details. We're just kind of, it's kind of vague. It's kind of there. I looked at uh, Eugene Peterson's version, The Message, earlier this week. And he words it this way, Streetwise people are smarter in this regard than law-abiding citizens. They are on constant alert, looking for angles, surviving by their wits. So it sounds like Jesus is saying people that have to survive on the streets, people of the world, they know how to... to I guess, use their resources to take care of themselves and take care of others. And children of the light, maybe they're not quite as clever. I don't know. We could talk about this for hours and probably just go in circles, but we'll move on to verse 9. This is where, especially verse 9, in light of the parable, is probably the most misunderstood and widely debated verse in all of the Bible. It says, And I tell you, make friends for yourself, but yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, 
so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. So what does that mean? What does Jesus mean by this, and how are we supposed to read it? Are we supposed to take this literally? Like look at verse 9 and say, literally, this is what Jesus means, is to use dishonest wealth or worldly money to make friends for ourselves so that we can gain eternal homes. Or is it that Jesus sometimes used exaggerated language, as we've already talked about in previous lessons, to stress a point, and there's usually a deeper meaning. Could it be just how we read it? Like you read this verse and you think, maybe there's some humor in this. Because Jesus often would use humor, sometimes we just miss it. What was his tone of voice? Like, how did he say this? Well, there's some mystery to this. We're not real sure exactly. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you this. Okay, you take this parable of the shrewd manager, and I just spent the last several weeks, and even beyond that, studying this, reading books, reading commentaries, having long discussions with people that I love and respect and value their opinions. I have listened a lot. I've done a lot of research on this parable, and it is a little confusing. It's definitely confusing, but my summary of the different possible meanings, I'm going to give you three possible meanings of interpretation and application for this parable. And I've simplified it. So what you'll see is the points are kind of a simplified summary, a short phrase that could be much more complicated, but for the sake of the sermon, I've simplified it. So what you're probably going to find is one of these three possible meanings, depending on who you're talking to. One way of looking at this is you could just flat out say, don't be like the shrewd manager. Don't be like any of the characters in, these, in this parable especially. So look at the big picture in Luke 16 and even all of Luke's gospel. A strong warning against people who worship and love money. We see that in this chapter. The chapter begins with a parable about a rich man and his manager who squanders his wealth. And the chapter ends with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And in between, in Luke 16 and verse 13, Jesus says you cannot serve both God and money. You can't serve two masters. You're either going to hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. And then right after that, in verse 14, Luke tells us the Pharisees did not like this because they were lovers of money. They love money, so they're sneering at Jesus. So it seems like the, the big picture, especially in chapter 16 and really throughout Luke's gospel, and maybe I'll mention more here in a few weeks when we look at the rich man and Lazarus, is that Jesus had a lot to say about wealth and about what it can do to us and do to our souls and the Pharisees and their love for money and their love for appearances. So maybe one way of looking at this parable is don't be like the shrewd manager and you won't wind up in the same predicament that he was in. It's because of his love for money that put him in that situation in the first place, squandering and wasting his master's wealth. And because of one sin, he had to cover that up with another sin. And this word dishonest is used, and he's in this kind of the spiral of dishonesty because of his love for money. There's a guy named Wayne Watts that many years ago wrote this book on, on money and giving. And he tells a short story about a friend of his who was in the oil business who was quite wealthy. And according to his words, he says, one day they hit a gusher, which means that uh, this wealthy oil man in one day doubled his money. So his friend asked him, what is it like 
go to bed one night and wake up the next day and you are twice as rich as you were the day before. And this guy's response was, it's no different because it wasn't mine to begin with. The way I view it is that everything that I have, whether it's my money or my resources, is it's not mine. It's something that God has entrusted to me to be a faithful steward of, and now He's given me more of it, so now the responsibility increases, but it's not mine to begin with. Maybe that was the problem with the shrewd manager, squandering and wasting the wealth. That was definitely the problem with the rich fool in the parable we looked at several weeks ago in Luke chapter 12. The rich fool who's building bigger barns, storing up things for himself, It's all about me, it's all about myself, it's all about my goods. And that guy failed to see that it all comes from God to begin with. So one way of looking at this parable, one possible meaning is don't be like the shrewd manager. A second way of looking at this is sort of be like the shrewd manager. And I tell you, that's how most people, just in my own summary, simplified way of summarizing what they think, is that like, yeah, we're not supposed to be like the shrewd manager in that we're not supposed to be dishonest, and we shouldn't imitate that. Obviously, you read the rest of Jesus' teachings, and He doesn't want us to imitate that. But we can learn a lesson from the shrewd manager. That's maybe what Jesus means in verse 9, is that we can be clever, we can be wise, we can be shrewd and creative and using and making use of the resources that God has given us. The shrewd manager, questionable character, but he was able to use what he had in a clever way. So maybe us as the sons of light or the children of light ought to be creative and clever in the way that we serve, in the way that we see possibilities and use the resources that God has given us. One author used the church in Acts as an example. He said that they were very clever in how they used the resources that they had. If you look at Acts chapters 2 and 4, there's these snapshots that Luke gives us, because this Acts is basically Luke part two. The snapshots that he gives us of the church in Acts 2 and 4 is they gave spontaneously. They were very generous, but it was just kind of like all over the place. But by the time you get to Acts chapter 6, they're appointing what I believe is the first deacons, and they're becoming very organized in how they're giving and they're using their resources and making sure widows aren't being overlooked. And then by the time you get to Acts chapter 11, they've learned how to see needs within other churches and other communities, and now they're giving and using their resources across great distances. So, one way of looking at this parable is, well, don't be like the shrewd manager, don't be a lover of money, don't wind up in those same situations, or it could be sort of be like the shrewd manager, learn a lesson from him, be clever, be creative, in the way that we use the resources that God has given us. And then a third possible meaning is just be better than the shrewd manager. That's the one that I kind of lean towards. I think there might be a little bit of truth to all three of them, and if you go to your Connect group tonight, you should discuss that. You can give your opinion there and then. But A teaching method that Jesus has used, and I have mentioned in several different sermons in this series, is called the lesser to greater teaching method. Or another way of referring to it or titling it is, how much more? Basically, you have a character in a parable, and it's like Jesus is saying, if this person does this, how much more would God do this? If A is true, how much more is B true? So one way of looking at this is if this worldly guy 
that's dishonest, that's caught in this spiral of dishonesty, if this guy was able to at least make some wise decisions to provide for his future, how much more should we as children of light, as kingdom people, store up treasures for ourselves in heavens to provide for our own futures? So maybe there's just kind of that how much more teaching that we have the shrewd manager and as Christians, as followers of Christ, how much more should we be clever in the way that we use our sources? Okay, so there's three possible meanings right there. And you can... Think about it how you want to. Maybe form your own opinion and own conclusion. And I'll tell you, there's still a mystery that remains. Because even those three possible meanings probably do not fully explain the parable to you, and I get that. I understand that. I simplified it for you. Uh, I preached this probably six years ago, and I gave two or three main different interpretations on a Sunday night service at a different church. And after it was over, I had three or four different guys come up to me to tell me what it meant. And none of their interpretations matched up with each other. So I thought, well, one of you has to be wrong. Okay, We're, So basically, the way we look at these parables is, yeah, there's some mystery to it. And maybe that's what Jesus does intentionally. He just kind of leaves certain things open-ended and He wants us to wrestle with it. But we can move on from the parable to the principles. And uh, Jonah read for us earlier today, Luke chapter 10, I mean Luke chapter 16, verse 10 through 15. And I want to read right now again, just verse 10 through 12. And these are the principles that follow the parable. So if you're getting tripped up or bogged down in the parable, look at the principles and then kind of use that as a filter for understanding the parable. So now we're back to verse 10 where we started. The Van Halen example. Whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with dishonest wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? So you look at these principles, and you can use that as a guide, as a filter for going back and looking at the shrewd manager. And if your conclusions of the shrewd manager are not true of these principles, then maybe you need to rethink it. But one big takeaway for me is kind of back to where we started. Are you faithful in the small things? In verse 10, which is what I'm really drawn to here, is if you're faithful with little, you'll be faithful with much. If you're dishonest with little, you'll be dishonest with much. So are you faithful with the money that God has given you, even if it's in small amounts? Are you faithful in how you use it? Or are you like the lost son or the shrewd manager who the same word is used in Luke 15 and 16, they squandered their master's wealth? Are you faithful in the small things? Are you faithful in the way that you treat people, even when nobody is watching? Like it's easy to come across as a nice person who does good deeds for people, who's a servant, when you know you're going to receive some credit and people are watching, but are you faithful in the way that you treat people even when nobody's watching? Are you faithful in how you grow in your own faith? You know, we can show up to church and be around church people and we can try to talk and sound spiritual but are we faithful in developing this inner life, practicing soul care when nobody's watching? Because if not, even if you try to sound spiritual, eventually 
you're, it's going to reveal itself that you're not faithful in those small things. Are you faithful if somebody lets you borrow something or entrusts something in you or gives you something? Are you faithful in the way that you handle it? Are you faithful in the small things? Mother Teresa is famous for several quotes. You know, she spent a lifetime working with the homeless and the hurting and the dying out on the streets in India. And one of her famous quotes is, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. I like that idea. In her mind, she woke up every day and she wasn't trying to become known or earn some great reputation or be known worldwide. She was just caring for people who were hurting and dying. And she said, you don't have to do these great big things. Do small things with great love. And maybe that's what Jesus means in verse 10. Be faithful to the small things that God has given you and God has entrusted you with. And they might be bigger than you would realize. Or maybe God is preparing you for something greater than you could ever imagine. So a guy named Erwin McManus, who's one of my favorite, or he's been one of my favorite Christian authors uh, for many years now. He, he preaches at a big church in Los Angeles, California. But he had humble beginnings. He started smaller at a small church in Dallas. And his theory has always been, whether you're speaking in front of 20 people or you're free, speaking in front of 20,000 people, to give it the same passion, preparation, and energy. To be faithful even in the, with the small crowd or the big crowd. So as his story goes, you know, he was never looking to be some big-name speaker or uh, best-selling author or anything like that. He just wanted to be faithful to what God had called him to. And one day, he's bilingual, so he was speaking at a Spanish service. And he didn't know who was in attendance that day, but he gave that sermon all that he had. But a guy that was in attendance was in charge of a very large Christian conference. And he saw Irwin's passion for this small little Spanish-speaking church. And he invited Irwin to come speak at their big conference the next year, which that was kind of the beginning of God allowing him to reach a much larger audience. But his theory is still the same. Whether it's a small group or a big group, he's going to give it the same energy. He's going to be faithful even in the little things. And in one of his books, as he shares a story, he says, be faithful in the small things because God may be preparing you for something much greater. You never really know. And you may never know if you're not faithful in the small things. So that's the principle that I take away from what Jesus is teaching in verse 10. And by way of invitation this morning, if you come here today and you have something on your heart, you're hurting, you're tired, you're weary, we want you to know we're here for you. If you've disconnected from Christ, then it's time to reconnect. Don't delay or wait on that. We're here for you. If you want to know Christ and know what it means to follow Him, we are here for you. You can come up front and talk with me. Uh, I see Ken over here, one of our shepherds. He may be up front as well. You can come talk with Ken. If we can help you in any way, please do that. Uh, let's stand and continue to sing. Had it not been